This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Chiefs attending an annual conference of the Assembly of First Nations have expressed views on the government's plan to legalize marijuana and say they must be given the right to govern the sale and distribution within their own communities. To talk more about all of this, Isidore Day is with us, Ontario Regional Chief, and on the line with us now. Isidore, thanks very much for taking the time to join us today. Good afternoon. So what is the position of First Nations when it comes to cannabis in this new law or this new uh, reality that comes uh, July of next year? Well, there's two positions. Obviously, the first being uh, this has got to be an issue of community safety and well-being. And and then the the, the bigger overarching piece uh, will be one of self-determination in First Nation jurisdiction. So, you know, we, we have to be uh, formally recognized as a jurisdiction around the issue of cannabis. So what does that mean? Well, what that means is that, uh, you know, because it's such a major societal shift that will affect uh, issues around health, uh, social structures, uh, uh, economics, and, you know, uh, the control of, of lands, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, retail, tax. Uh, there's just so many areas uh, that will we'll run fluid uh, the issue of cannabis. So we we are saying because First Nations uh, are are more and more talking about rights and and authorities, that we we need to ensure that every aspect of our communities are prepared uh, for the issue of cannabis and and where say health is concerned or where people want to benefit from uh, First Nation economies. Uh, there's a there's a number of major complex issues to consider. Isidore, is this new ground, or is this just similar to tobacco or other things? Is there is there anything you can fall back on to uh, to use as guidance, or is this ju- is just as new for for your community as it is for everyone else's? Well, it, it's actually uh, uh, it's it's pretty new uh, in one sense, uh, but we have the the uh, the, the tobacco uh, scenario experience that uh, the smoke shops. Uh, you know the, the the relationship with the federal government, uh, the challenges that the province uh, had uh, uh, in our First Nations incursion around the t- tobacco shops. Uh, uh, th- this is similar, but there are some other major complex issues here that uh, that are going to uh, task us to look at this very carefully. So, does this mean that First Nations automatically? Well, can we compare this to to tobacco, Isidore? Is it the same thing? Is it you know, since you can produce and sell and and do that on your own, does that mean that? Well, sure, the same would automatically apply for cannabis, or is it a different road? Well, it's it's somewhat the same because uh, there a lot of the jurisdictional issues and challenges are the same. Uh, a lot of the health issues are the same. But the difference here is that tobacco wasn't illegal uh, prior to First Nations securing their place in the tobacco uh, uh, economy. But uh, marijuana right now is is an illicit drug. It's, it it is illegal. So what they're they're doing is decriminalizing it. And in the decriminalization of it, there's there's a set of issues that will will affect our communities. And then there's also you know the health issues and the uh, the other impacts that are that are somewhat similar to. Uh, uh, to tobacco, so uh, it, it is uh, in some senses the same, uh, but uh, again, we're 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 looking at shifting this from the black market to becoming legalized, and that has a, a number of implications. So, how is uh, how is the fir- how are First Nations viewing this? Are they viewing this 
to be a part of it like uh, the LCBO is. In other words, manufacture your own, uh, sell your own, uh, and just like it is for uh, tobacco, is that what the solution is here? Because really, that's the only thing that's different. Everything else is the same as any other Canadian citizen. You're concerned about health, taxation, whatever, so on. So really, it comes down to is, is this going to be compared to, you know, tobacco for Indigenous people? Uh, for, uh, can we compare that to, to marijuana as well? Because really, that's where it'll be growth and distribution on and off the reserve that becomes an issue, don't you think? Well, that's part of it, and and again, like there are there are people saying that. Listen, uh, Tainanega, for example, they have uh, you know upwards of twenty uh, some odd dispensaries. Uh, you know, there's there's people making making money hand over fist right now, and there's there's people that are that are earning a modest living, and and certainly going to have a positive impact that way. It's a new revenue stream, and it's one that. Know, First Nations uh, that are that are prepared for that that are saying, listen, we we uh, we want to look at the possibilities and we want to be clear about, you know, what that means to us going forward, and we want governments to respect that. But then there are other communities that are saying, listen, uh, we're we're not prepared to uh, uh, to suffer the the impacts of that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a risk to young people, there's a risk to uh, social structures, and and we simply don't have the health care system or the community safety programs, the policing programs in place to make sure that there's enforcement. So uh, it is it is different, and, and there there is uh, uh, varying degrees of, of opinion, and readiness is, is really going to be the issue. But th- for those that are ready, uh, they're saying, listen, uh, we, we would like the Assembly of First Nations, we would like our regional organizations like the Chiso Ontario, you know, to to support in terms of understanding the policies and the regulations and the process, but we would like to assert our rights as a First Nation. Uh, much like what's happened with other Canadian citizens, uh, it sounds the same as, as First Nations in the sense that some are some uh, don't have a problem with it, some are very concerned about it. There's there's obviously opinions on both sides, uh, both sides of this issue. As First Nations, how are you going to balance that? Just like everybody else does. I mean, how are you going to how are you going to balance when some people want it and some people don't want it in the community? Well- Every community is going to decide, and every community at at some point will always uh, come up with its own position. And uh, it it it's really going to uh, manifest the the real struggles and challenges that that uh, the federal and provincial governments uh, have regarding you know its lack of respect for First Nations jurisdictions. And what I mean by that is is this is going to be a, a real test. In the relationship that the, that the crown has with First Nation people across the country, and it will uh, it will uh, determine how well uh, each jurisdiction respects that First Nation, and you know are the if the if the governance is there. Does respecting mean just letting them do what they want? At the end of the day, what I'm trying to figure out here, Isidore, is that. Uh, Will this be sold on reserves? Will there be pots uh, shops just like there's as many smoke shops, or will it not be sold on reserve, or will it be sold under government control on reserve? There's really only a few options here. What do you think the majority of your people want to do? Well, I think the majority of our people want to want to know first of all what the issues and impacts are, and and there are, there are some that are saying no, and there are some that are saying listen, uh, we we need to know what we're dealing with so let's let's walk through the process uh let's figure out what sort of resources and capacity are there and and if in fact say for uh, for an example if there is a uh production for the the medical use of cannabis then we we certainly want to have access and a and a 
uh, a part of the the licensing that that is being doled out by the federal government on that side. On the provincial side, again, that's where that's where this is going to get clouded because you know provincial laws just do not apply on First Nations. So so how could you take the whole uh, production retail side of this and and say you know that's going to apply to First Nations? That's the gray area, and and that's going to be the challenge that we're all going to have to face here in the next several months. Is this a gray area, Isidore, because it's a new issue? I mean, really, when you think about it, can you compare this to other issues of the past, whether it's, um, you know, whether who was here first or not? At the end of the day, can we have two separate laws um, uh, uh, deciphering a drug in the same with almost within the same communities? I mean, because that's really what's going to happen. And, you know, I think what people are concerned about is that like smoke shops and contraband cigarettes, that this will become just as big of a problem, if not more, when all of a sudden marijuana sales uh, is legalized. What are your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts on that are, are this. Many of those problems that you speak about, they all go back to the issue of capacity. Uh, capacity for law enforcement, capacity for education, capacity for the development of consumer standards and safeguards. And at the end of the day, this will be about resource revenue sharing. How do you think the federal government is actually doing this? You know, they, they will be drawing on the excise tax. Uh, they'll be sharing and, and there'll be a flow of the, the retail sales tax on, on this that is buried into the LCBO-type model from Ontario. And and what they do with those resources is they ensure that the infrastructure is there. There will need to be that capacity and those resources that are drawn out of to ensure that First Nations can safely uh, deal with the issue of cannabis. If the government fails to do that, they're failing First Nations again, and, and we're probably going to look at... Uh, issues of uh, organized crime moving from the dispensaries now that are across the country, uh, and once they're once they're illegal, uh, full force by by the, the the laws of the land as of J- July first, you know wh- wh- where do you think those interests are going to try to divert themselves to the ambiguous areas and and the gray areas that we talk about? So First Nations are saying, listen, uh, we need to be formally engaged. Mm-hmm. We need the, a share of those resource excise tax so we can put the systems and structures in place to ensure that we can put jurisdiction in place uh, that, that will effectively help us to safely deal with this. Are dispensaries uh, allowed on reserves now? There are dispensaries on First Nations uh, right now. Um, and whether or not they're allowed, that's uh, that's of the opinion and, and uh, position of that community. I'm not. Um, that's not my place to say. Uh, allowed by whom? Would that be? I'm, I'm assuming by the community. So are 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 there are there these sorts of outlets being run now, and the community doesn't want them? That's uh, that's every First Nation it's has different their, that way. Yeah, they're they're different. They're different opinions on that. I can't say either way. Right. Um, uh, so what in your mind, uh, Isidore, is the perfect system? How, how would, um, what, what would, what would you like to see as, uh, a perfect system for, uh, distribution, sale, what have you come July? How would you like to see First Nations involved? Well, I, I think the, the government needs to recognize that, you know, just like, uh, uh, just like there are uh, organized areas, there are you know mi- municipalities have arrangements uh, through through provincial 
provincial laws and, and legislation and standards. And you know, there there are uh, you know uh, local governance uh, systems and models where you know they tailor those to meet uh, provincial provincial laws. But listen, they have the resources. They 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 have. Uh, uh, the ability to do this, and and our First Nations are saying, listen, you, you, we're not governed under provincial law, so there will definitely need to be uh, some uh, some real dialogue between uh, government and our First Nations to to figure out how that will all sort itself out. Because at the end of the day, this will amount to the issue of uh, how much resources are there to to build the the safety systems in place. So that's basically what we're dealing with here but if uh if first nations decide they're going to go it alone and grow and produce and sell and do whatever they want isn't it on their own despite what any government says and i'm just i mean that's a you know that's just my theory at this point i mean this is just a hypothetical situation but if by chance it's like tobacco and the community is allowed to do whatever it wants uh then isn't it up to them to provide those safeguards if you're getting all the profit from that well, and and I guess that's where you know many First Nations are are moving ahead, and and where those smoke shops are located now, where they're able to assert their, their economic rights, uh, they're flourishing, and and somehow uh, there there are ways and means for communities to say, listen, this is how we're going to do it, uh, and somehow there's there's people that that are benefiting and and gaining, and uh, so they, it's uh it's. It's are you concerned? A, are you concerned, uh, Isidore, that money is going to drive this, especially on the reserve? That at the end of the day, if people are making money, they're going to do it. Money is going to drive everything. That's what's driving the federal government right now. Like, make no mistake. Uh, well, it's driving everybody. It's driving yeah, those opening up the yeah. smoke shops on reserves too. Come on, like let's sure. not. You know, it's, it's both the same. For sure. So if, let me ask you this, and and I think this is the big concern, Isidore, is that if we can't get a handle, and meaning Ontario, um, if the province can't get a handle on contraband cigarettes and is losing so much to that every year, how can they possibly have a handle on uh, a situation with cannabis on First Mm -hmm. Nations? And and I guess that's probably why the the vast majority of people are saying, listen, uh, it, this is happening way too fast. Yeah. We, we haven't put our thought to this. Uh, there hasn't been, uh, you know, a collaboration among among uh, various governments. Uh, listen, you, you've got entire provinces that are saying, no way, we, we want a one-year delay. And that's, that's the nature of, of this problem. Uh, for the most part, First Nations self-policing, uh, self-governed, that sort of thing. Is this something, Isidore, that brings to the two sides together that 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 you know here's something that we have to work together on because it is new oh for sure there, there's no doubt about it this is this is not only a, a major challenge to everybody it's a major opportunity and i think uh you know being that this is the the genesis of a major societal shift and uh the the, the pulling away of of uh um criminalization of, of marijuana, uh, we, we seen this with prohibition, you know, it, it, it made for, uh, a, a very different landscape in this country and in others that had to deal with this. And it will be the same with first nations. We will definitely see an opportunity here to allow, uh, another level and layer of self-government that, that I think might, uh, also help generate some revenues in, in making sure that the proper systems are in place. Uh, can you see licensed uh, grow ops on First Nations. I, I see it. I see yeah. uh, First Nations having their own uh, 
consumer laws in place, their own enforcement policies. But uh, do you, can you see this, Isidore, being you know very similar to any other licensed producer uh, in the country? I mean, would they, like this is still going to be? Do you, do you see this being licensed through the federal, the provincial government, or this something strictly independent on on your own? Well, I think First Nations are going to, you know, uh, uh, show their show their the, the robust nature and, and ability to put their own laws in place, and, and you will see this. As long as we have, uh, you know, those strategic partnerships with uh, the federal and provincial governments, uh, you, you will see uh, harmonization occur here, and that's basically what, what is going to be needed. For First Nations, that will say, listen, uh, we're not prepared, we're, we're not ready for self-government around this issue. Uh, they, they will uh, fall to the, uh, what's there in place, and the, the default will occur. But as far as uh, First Nations that are ready, uh, there's going to be many that are going to say, listen, Here's our law on this. Uh, here's what standards and regulations we have in place to ensure safety, uh, to ensure a fair share of the resource. I, I think you're going to see that uh, come out of the cannabis uh, legalization. Uh, Isidore, as far as tradition, culture, uh, we certainly know the role tobacco has played uh, over time with First Nations. Um, how is cannabis viewed uh, over time? Uh, historically with First Nations? Do they view it the same as tobacco? Do they do they view it spiritually, uh, medicinally the same way? Or do it, it, or is it even mentioned? Is it even part of the folklore? Well, I'm, I'm, if that if that plant is, is anywhere on this continent, right. uh, it, it is it is part of uh, uh, historically our, our, our medicinal system and, mm-hmm. and and whether or not it was used as a smoker with if it was ingested that's that's a different story um, people have varying degrees of of opinion on this uh, and others have uh, very different memories right so all right let me ask you this let me ask you this are first nations communities as divided about tobacco as they are about cannabis I think there was one time when we were we were divided on on uh, tobacco as well, right? Like uh, um, you know, on on one sense in terms of the just the recreational use of tobacco, there's a there's a divide there, whereas uh, tobacco is also seen as a medicine, and that there mm-hmm. is no divide there. People always respected that, but it's really the, the the use and and the consumption and consumerism around it that will be the the, the concern here. Fascinating discussion. Uh, Isidore Day has been with us, Ontario Regional Chief. Chiefs attending the annual conference of Assembly of First Nations have expressed views on the government's plan to legalize marijuana and, of course, uh, want input and uh, the right to govern the sale and distribution within their own communities. Isidore, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. After the Auditor General's report yesterday, the Ontario NDP wants every dollar that was fraudulently claimed paid back in full to uh, Ontario people. To talk about all of this, John Vantoff is with us, uh, Ontario NDP finance critic and on the line with us now. John, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Oh, no problem. Great to talk to you. So what stands out with uh, this Auditor General report for you? Well, what really stands out is we've got with the private gas plants, we've got uh, up to now $260 million of seemingly inappropriate claims. So basically, so they're, they've, got a, they've got a contract to produce power, and yet they're still, it's cost plus because they're claiming, and they're claiming for stuff like uh, raccoon traps. And so we want all the money paid back 
to the people who are actually paying the exorbitant hydro bills that we're paying on to. Uh, we are hearing uh, raccoon traps and scuba gear. Uh, I, I don't know. I guess you have to keep raccoons away from hydro facilities, don't you? I mean, uh, where yeah. do we draw the line here? But and 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 I can see that. But again. The reason that people people are talking about private power is cheaper. You pay less for the power, but then it's not. Then that's that's the cost of doing business. If you're, you know, we don't believe that private power is cheaper for for that reason. You don't get to charge extra expenses when you get the contract for the power. You get paid so much for it. It's not cost plus. Uh, so it, where's the problem here? Is the problem here that the government isn't keeping tabs on uh, what it's paying for, or is this unethical businesses that are just taking advantage of a government that isn't keeping its eyes on what's going on? Well, well the, the problem is both. Right? The, the problem is you need, when if, if, if you have private contracts, you need a very strong regulatory pro- process to monitor it. Obviously, we don't have that here. The hydro system is really complicated in Ontario. That started when the, when the Mike Harris government tried to sell it and pieced it all off. And obviously no one's got a complete handle on who's charging what for what. So um, how do we get handle on this? How do we, uh, you, you know, you were talking about government accountability. How do we get a handle on this? And, and what does the next party that comes into uh, to power do to this to get ahead of it? So obviously you've got to put it in a lot stronger regulatory uh, uh, regulatory regime on the on the the private power generators. Uh, the one thing that we're proposing that's different from the other parties is we're proposing that we need to regain control, management control of Hydro One, because Hydro One is now because it's it's a private power company as well. So the first thing they do as a private power company is they go out and buy a a, a power a power company in the states, a coal powered coal fired power company. That's not helping the people of Ontario. So the only way you're going to slowly get recontrol, regain control, is every time there's private power comes up, and now with Hydro One, we need to regain, regain control of that company. So, uh, obviously, the NDP think that this is better in the hands of the public than in uh, partial hands or full hands, whatever, of the private sector, and, and that's been a debate that's been going on forever. That being said, uh, at the end of the day, if governments could run this, would we be in the scenario that we're in now. I mean, the NDP government at one point was was in power in Ontario. Um, how did we get here? And the reason I'm thinking we got here is because those big questions and those big decisions that had to be made way back when, whether it was upgrading the system or looking towards the future, everybody just punted those costs down the road. So how is the public system doing any better job of this than the private system is? Because well, in, in the end, it, it was public, and that's how we got to where we are. I mean, at the end of the day, the bill was huge. We, we didn't have the money to, to refurb, so we brought in private people to help us out. No, and in, in, in the end, in our, in, in our opinion, what we did, as opposed to what our neighbors to the east and west did, is we parceled it into pieces, or the governments of the day, and they, they sold parts off. And every time you put a profit-generating line into your bill, your bill goes up. So the you know because because they believe that power that private is cheaper, but private for essential service is not cheaper. So if you look at Quebec or you look at Manitoba, who both have public systems, who both yes they both went to the plate and and actually rebuilt their systems with public dollars then the profit from those systems goes back to dividends to the people, either in lower hydro rates 
or in in money to hospitals or money to to schools. So uh, your, I'm going to ask you how we got here. Your your uh, explanation would be the second that it went out of, of, of public hands and into private. Each time, and not the second, each time. So we sold off power generation. We now we're selling off power transmission, or the government sold. And in each time, you put a profit line into the into the hydro bill. I've got nothing against private companies making profit. I've been a private business my whole life, but each time you put a, priv- a profit line into into an essential service, the cost for that essential service goes up. And we've been doing that for 20, 20 years. And you can just have to look at a Quebec hydro bill, or my writing's right in the border of Quebec. You look at a Quebec hydro bill or an Ontario hydro bill. Quebec is public. Ontario is many many experts that I've many experts that I've talked to that have said that though you can't compare apples to oranges that way that the hydroelectricity capacity that Quebec has you just can't even make that comparison. You, there are certain things you can't compare, but you can compare the the, the costs that we've incurred each time that we've put out private power contracts that were for exorbitant dollars or when we've sold the Hydro One and the first thing that Hydro One does is buy a company buy a company that's not even in our country, again, that is not benefiting the people of Ontario. Do you think Ontarians have confidence in the government running these organizations? I mean, whether it's this, healthcare, what have you, I mean, you know... well, pri- pri- private private companies, it seems to me, as, as a middle-aged man, have been brought in to clean up the mess after the expenses got so high governments can't afford it anymore. But, but, That's but, what but, I'm saying. I mean, and again, but, but, governments never seem to, you know, when it comes to renewables, where's that money coming from if it's not coming from private? Does that come from taxpayers? But, but, but again, if you, you ask me if the public believes, well, and the, if you look at public data, public polling data, 80% of the public opposes the sale of either one. And I think the vast majority of the public believes in our public health care system. I think there are essential services that the vast majority of the public understands that you need, you need the public involved. There is a place for the private sector, but the place for the private sector is not in essential services. The reason, the reason that Ontario became a manufacturing powerhouse, the reason it became is because from day one, Ontario Hydro was to produce power at cost to support the rest of the economy. And as soon as we stopped doing that, as soon as we put profit line after profit line in the hydro system, the the overall economy and the families of Ontario continue to lose. So uh, why, what was the reasoning for bringing in public, or sorry, uh, private capacity then? Because from what I remember, the, private capa- the reason private capacity was brought in was because, again, uh, systems needed upgrade, the future, this sort of thing. And no government of the day once can get elected by raising taxes enough to pay for all of this stuff. And that's how the private sector got involved. The private sector got involved because... It- because governments didn't want to spend the money, and because there is profit to be made. Well, we also have to say government governments didn't want to governments didn't want to spend the money because people don't want to pay the taxes. Because but, really, government government will spend the money hand over fist if the if the people will gladly hand them over their tax dollars. The problem is, governments wanted to be reelected. They know they're not going to be reelected if they say, "Hey, we got to pay this massive hydro bill to fix up the infrastructure." So they bring in the private sector to do that. 
So again, uh, you know, I don't see how taking it back to the public sector is going to alleviate this problem. Because again, we got here because governments didn't tend to the problem when they had the opportunity to decades ago. We, we got here because every time governments made the mistake of each time when they, they sold off parts of the power system, people were very happy, investors were very happy to buy Hydro One. Why? Because it's a profit center. And the government decided yeah, you got whatever, it, but, they, whatever they want. So let's because, get back to that. What is the reason they sold it? And you can't say for whatever reason they sold it. They didn't sell it just because they wanted to. They sold it to generate revenue and pay f- and to recoup the cost of refurbishing. So they, they you know, sold you know, it to balance the budget. That's what the, they sold it for. The, you know, at the end of the day, who's going to pay? Who's going to want to? What government is going to want to say to the to the people of Ontario or wherever? You know what? We're going to raise your taxes because we got to upgrade the the electricity system. Instead, they because they want to get elected, and this is every political party, including yours. They'll say, "Nah, we're going to push this to the back burner. We're going to push this off," and then before you know it, it's out of hand, and the only way it's going to be resolved is through a large amount of private capital. I, I think I capital, don't, at don't the end of the day... Accuse, I don't think you can accuse the NDP mm. of being on selling off public power. We have never been on that bandwagon. No, no but at um, the... You, but okay, it, just... But so, why, so, why, when the NDP, why when the NDP were in, back way back when in the Bob Ray days, why didn't they rejig all of this? Actually, when in... And that was a long time ago... We did rejig some of that when, and that was way before my time, but from what I, what I can relate, we actually, the Peterson government had signed a bunch of private power deals, and we renegotiated to bring them back in where we could, to bring them back in the public fold. Because once again, we know that the generation and the transmission of power is a profit center for these companies. We, we are in favor of private companies making profit, but not in essential services. Those essential services should be provided at cost, or the profit from those should go back into public hands where they can benefit the economy and benefit Ontario and Ontario families. So, Diana, do you, you honestly think, John, that we can put this genie back in the bottle and buy it all back and run it as a no. public system? Not, I, I, I don't think, no. Can we do it all at once? No. I mean, can we, and that's why we're saying in, in, in the first thing we would do is take the steps necessary to regain control of Hydro One. That's our transmission system. We're, that, that's where we're going to make our first step to regain control of, our, of Hydro One. That's the first step. You can't do this. You can't just yeah. change. You can't change 25 years of history. No. But you can't just say because, we would, because governments have been doing the wrong thing for 25 years or 20 years that we have no choice but to continue doing them. That. That is not government's job. Government's job is to identify the issue and what, where they've made mistakes, where we believe they've made a mistake, is selling off the, the essential service that Ontarians have Ontario's been built on and that Ontarians depend on, and they've sold it off piece by piece. We believe that we have to change course and start regaining control of our hydro system. Uh, NDP has talked a lot about that. Andrea Horvath has commented on the show uh, about purchasing uh, Hydro uh, One back, uh, but really doesn't comment a lot on renewables and the future and the Green Energy Act and the so-called energy mistake 
that Kathleen Wynne made. Where where do you see that moving forward? Where do you see uh, renewables and, and the whole Green Energy Act, which of course is is costing Ontarians a fortune and now will cost our grandkids because it's been refinanced yeah. uh, for 30 years. So where do you guys see that as far as renewables so, and uh, such? The issue, the issue, the issue and, and I'm going to start sounding a broken record, but the issue isn't the Green Energy Act. The issue is the privatization of green energy and the fact that the contracts that were given out and the private contracts that were given out for the green energy companies were vastly above the market rate of hydro. That was the issue with the Green Energy Act. They did a very bad job of negotiating with the companies who were going to put up these green energy initiatives. That's, that's the issue with the Green Energy Act. There is, there is all kinds of future in green energy. The price of Create, uh, the price of generating green energy has fallen drastically, right? But we, but not we, the government of the day negotiated, did a very bad job of negotiating with the private sector regarding the generation of green energy. So under an NDP system, would we be doing that? Would we be paying for the upgrades and installation and such of, of wind turbines and, and solar and such? Because obviously now private companies are doing that and being subsidized by the government, uh, and that's what you're talking about, bad well, deals. Uh, would, would, would we then take over that, or would that still be in private hands? Well, private companies who have, who have signed contracts with the government have signed contracts, and, and you, know, you can't... You can't yeah. Cancel a signed contract. That's no. that's the gas plant scandal all over again. That's right. what the gas plants can right. So, but from contracts that going in, you have to watch call. You have to make sure that the that if if there the need for energy is there, that those contracts if they're if they're or if we need any more, and I don't think we need more any more private contracts, that they are for a reasonable price. But I I believe. The first thing when the Green Energy Act was instituted, they took the ability away from the public sector to create green energy, and I think the public sector should have that ability once again, that they should be able to create green energy. Uh, do we have the money to buy back these shares? Uh, over time, yes. How long would that be? Any idea? Um, that, that, depends, that depends on what the share price is of the day and uh, the amount of funds we direct to it. Uh, can can we take a system back from private to public, considering we have these ongoing contracts? But but we're talking about a very complex system. Yeah. So so if you look at Hydro One, which is the transmission part of the right. system, right? If we buy back enough shares of Hydro One to regain control, then we will have regained control of our of our trans- transmission. transmission part of our system, right? right? And so and if, if, if when in the future we need more power, we direct that, okay, the power needs, we need OPG to, to generate more power, then, again, we don't need to sign more private contracts. We can direct a company which Ontario, Ontarians own to produce more power. Can this be made more transparent? Uh, I think that's one of the concerns of Ontarians is that it just seems to be like a giant shell game to them. <laughs> and that's that's also one of our concerns, and I think it, it uh, the electric electricity system is a very complex system, right? And everyone and you know and everyone who's and and politicians are just as guilty. We all point at the certain parts of the system. It it needs to be made much more transparent so people can understand it. And this this latest Auditor General's report it should be made very transparent. What those inappropriate expenses 
were and how they're being paid back. And in the Ontario Energy Board report, that was all blacked out. Well, that shouldn't be blacked out. John Vandoff has been with us, Ontario NDP finance critic. John, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Anytime. Talk to you later. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, if you listen to the show on any regular basis, you know we're uh, kind of space cadets and interested in what's going on when we look up. Uh, 2017 saw a rise in lunar milestones. Why is it so much focus on the moon this year and on what's happening up above? Let's bring in Randy Atwood, Executive Director, Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. And uh, hang on a sec. And with us now, Randy, good to uh, talk to you. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. My pleasure, Scott. Good to talk to you. Tell us what the Royal Astro- uh, Astronomical Society of Canada is. Uh, it's a uh, it's, a, it's Canada's National Astronomy Club. To be quite honest, we have over five thousand members. We have an active group in Hamilton and uh, twenty-eight other branches across the country. And next year is our one hundred and fiftieth anniversary. So we're pretty excited about that. And Canada Post is putting out a couple astronomical stamps for everybody and next summertime so we're we're getting all ready for our 150th anniversary 150 years it's hard to believe we've been interested in what goes on above us for that length of time and actually had a handle on this but obviously we did well i think people have been looking up uh, ever since they've been able to do so and uh, the history of astronomy in canada is long and uh, we've done our fair share of uh, contributing to what we now know about uh, the universe around us. So uh, we're looking forward to uh, to celebrating that with everybody next year. Is there a renewed interest in space exploration, or has it always been there? I mean, many said that, you know, the space race of the 60s was it, but I, I don't know. I grew up during the challenging a Challenger era and space shuttles and such. And, and that was pretty fascinating to watch as well, although it seemed to get to the point where they were going up so often it wasn't really a big deal anymore. What is our interest now? Well, that's a good point. Uh, I got interested in space and astronomy during the summer of 69, so I lived through Apollo, and it was uh, every two months they were sending uh, Apollo to the moon up until Apollo 11, and it was a very exciting time. And uh, you know, you couldn't beat seeing uh, two people walk on the moon. But even, you know, after the second flight, you know, the Apollo 13 mission, there wasn't a lot of media interest, people mm-hmm. interest, until the thing blew up. Then it got really interesting. But the last couple trips to the moon, uh, it was, uh, you know, it wasn't covered live. You had to stay up late till 1130 to watch the highlights, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. So I, I think people are in general are, are fickle. You know, the first is always exciting, and the second is, well, kind of interesting, and the third, well, you know, who knows. And that's why the shuttle, you know, 135 shuttle missions uh, over 30-some-odd uh, years, it uh, it was as exciting, even though some of the things that they were doing uh, up on the space station w- was pretty amazing. What makes it exciting now? Well, I think I would argue with a lot of other people who follow space exploration that it uh, it kind of we're kind of hoping it will get exciting soon. Um, the The problem is just just that in the '60s there was a space race, and uh, you know President Kennedy had you know set the challenge land before the end of the decade. Uh, he was assassinated, so the people who were working on the space program made it their mission to satisfy his bold challenge, even though there were some talks about, hey, this is 
way too expensive. Uh, but uh, you know, they were able to beat the the Soviets to the moon. And then even after the first couple of missions, you know, Congress began to say, well, do we really need to spend this money to go go back to the moon? And then what is the next step after the moon? Well, let's make a reusable spacecraft. Well, the shuttle was just that. It was reusable, but they didn't really save a lot of money making a reusable spacecraft because it just wasn't it's just always expensive to make sure that you're building something that's not going to that's going to work properly in space hopefully in the next few months and years you know given this particular US government has said we're going to go back to the moon uh even though you know in 1989 the first bush president president bush said we would be landing on the moon by 2019 uh, and that program got canceled. And then the second, President Bush in 2004, said we would be landing on the moon by 2020, and that got canceled. So the whole problem with setting up a, a, a manned program to land on the moon is that you, it, the program has to last longer than a presidency. Mm. And if the next president doesn't accept the previous president's plans and cancels them, then you get nowhere. And that's the problem that we've seen. The difference now is that the Europeans, the Japanese, the Chinese, more of these uh, various, uh, and even the Russians, are, are talking about going to the moon and sending people to the moon. And I think that, you know, the, the, the Ameri- if the Americans go to the moon, but Canada has an in to send our astronauts on the same flights. But, um, you know, ultimately, I think many countries will have to work together to make a successful uh, program to send people to the moon, just like uh, many many countries are working on the space station. Ultimately, uh, I think that's what's going to happen. But you know, it, w- just after the first landing on the moon, Scott, there was a big headline in the paper, and that is astronauts will be on Mars by 1980. Mm, yeah. And then you know, the the whole idea of putting people on Mars has always been this carrot on the end of a 20 to 30 year stick which is always 20 to 30 years in in the future. And uh, people are now beginning to realize as we learn more about how space affects people and uh, the uh, environment out there that, you know, going to the moon is hard. Going to the moon is a lot, uh, going to Mars is a lot harder. And uh, I think more and more people are thinking, let's go to the moon, let's learn how to live on the moon for extended periods of time and develop uh, the hardware and software and everything we need to go to Mars and then let's go to Mars. But is that the uh, reason for heading back to the moon at this point is just to set up the next journey, which is to Mars? I, I, I think so. Some, some people are very anxious to go to Mars. You know, you look at these billionaires like Elon Musk, who's who's taking his own money to build rockets and something to go to Mars because he he wants to see it happen in his lifetime. And a lot of these billionaires with their own money are thinking, you know, if we leave it up to NASA and the government, it's not going to happen. So now we're getting more and more of this space commercialization. Uh, Companies that are getting some funding from the government, but ultimately they they want to somehow pay their own way to get people to Mars. So I guess we're going to see a mixture of of government and uh, commercialization. Why was 2017 a good year for space? Or perhaps uh, a good year for us thinking about space? <laughs> well, you know, the, uh, the highlight of, of the year in my mind was the, uh, the solar eclipse on August 21st. And this was the first uh, total eclipse of the sun passing through the uh, continental United States so ever since 1979. And uh, millions of people were able to take advantage of it. And, you know, we had a fairly... Uh, deep partial eclipse in uh, in southern Ontario here, and uh, you know it was a 
perfect storm. You know, it was during the summer holidays. It was a uh, the weather was good practically everywhere, and uh, social media, you know, just uh, at, promoted the whole event. And uh, there were a lot of people who got to take advantage of, of it and see their first total solar eclipse. And if you haven't seen one, it's it's well worth it. And uh, you know, if you live in the Hamilton area, you don't have to go very far at all. Uh, because there'll be one in April 2024. Yeah, the next one is is we're in ground zero for that, are we not? You I are. We are. Yeah, you are. You don't have to move at all. Yeah. So um, it is. Uh, it's an amazing thing to see. You know, the last one that went through uh, southern Ontario here was in uh, 1924. So uh, they do happen from time to time, but uh, you know it definitely is a once in a lifetime if you're just going to wait for something uh, to happen in your backyard. So we're looking forward to that. Not. Just seven years, seven years from now. Uh, uh, back in the 1960s, again, it was uh, the space race. Everybody was into this. It, it, it modeled pulp, uh, pop culture, industry, what have you. Uh, you know, I remember Velcro was a big thing that came out of, you know, all of these. Uh, well, one of the many things that came out of these uh, these missions and such. Uh, obviously, it contributes a lot. It contributes a lot to industry and such. Where are we with that now? What is industry's interest in space exploration? Well, there's a lot of uh, interest in, in STEM education these days, science, technology, engineering, math. And, uh, you know, the, our economy depends on young people getting into these various areas of, of technology in their, in their careers. And, uh, you know, astronomy, space exploration, those are two things that trigger young people to, uh, to really get excited about science. And uh, so I can see more interest from industry to work with young people to get them, uh, to inspire them to get into this kind of career. You know, you, you look back just 50, year, 50 years ago, to put a satellite into space, you needed millions and millions of dollars. And, you know, it was generally government uh, paying uh, a, a few industries to build these things. Now, if you want to build your own satellite, you can get, work with a say graduate students at universities or whatever and you know they're ten twenty thousand dollars to put your own satellite in orbit so it's it, we've come that far that uh, that these things are are open to young people to get involved with uh, you know with putting their own satellites up for for example so I think it's you know with with more and more of these various technologies being involved with space I mean the space industry in Canada is billions and billions of dollars if not sending people up but you know the far the remote sensing or or just keeping track of you know communications or environment um, you know within Canada it's uh, it's a lucrative uh, industry and it's always growing what does the next decade hold for us? What, what, you know, if you could look into the crystal ball, and again, you know, as you mentioned, so many times there's great ideas and then they fall through or there's no funding or, or governments change or such. What can we expect in the next decade? Well, the space station itself is, uh, it's not going to last forever. So ultimately, uh, we can see them, uh, you know, closing up the space station and deorbiting it probably in the, in the 2020s sometime. Um, and then the, the question will be what, what comes next? Uh, if, uh, you know, you think back to the movie 2001, uh, where somebody wanted to go to the moon, you first went into a space station in Earth orbit, because it's, it, it's a big, it takes a lot of energy to get you off the Earth into orbit into mm-hmm. space, but it doesn't take much energy to get you from an orbiting space station in Earth orbit on the way to the moon. 
And that, to me, seems to be, uh, you know, some sort of, they're going to have to set up some sort of uh, linkage uh, to get people back and forth to the moon. So I can see something like that happening. And if there is enough interest and support for the whole idea of, hey, you know, let's go to Mars, let's, let's get some countries together, go to Mars, make it a 50-year plan where we'll go to, Mo- go to the moon, uh, do that for 20 years, develop all uh, what we need, and then start to, de- to develop the kind of large rockets. And es- essentially, you need a mini space station to, to go to Mars, uh, you know, if it's a nine-month trip, or maybe technologies to, uh, to get us there faster. You know, a lot of people think that there's a technological breakthrough coming hmm. that will, uh, per- you know, make it a, a 30-day trip instead of a nine-month trip to Mars. And that would change everything we would suddenly i think we we would become a solar system space-faring people uh able to not only go to mars but to go to some of the other planets as well so uh we're hoping that that happens otherwise if we have to go with this this slow boat to mars nine months there and nine months back and maybe you have to stay there for a year and a half before the the position of mars and, and earth line up again for you to come home that that just isn't a practical way to go back and forth to Mars. So uh, hopefully that's, that's what we'll see uh, in the next uh, decade, but I tell you, I couldn't have predicted what was going to happen in the last couple decades years ago. So Fascinating. That's a, tough, hmm. that's a tough call, yeah. <laughs> Randy Atwood has been with us, Executive Director, Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. Randy, uh, Randy thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're my pleasure. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.